Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name is Ed Mann and today we're carrying on the conversation we actually started the last episode with Scott. So enjoy. Moving back on very swiftly, sorry, onto the web application security, database interaction. And, uh, you know, you did mention earlier, you know, the SQL injection attacks. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, for a lot of developers, yep, we can, uh, yep, we're going to use prepared statements. We're going to use like PDO. And, you know, again, it's splitting out that data and code. It's very interesting. You know, you mentioned that, it, you know, you can kind of see that through all these things that that, that really is applicable. Uh, I'm just wondering kind of, you know, at a fundamental level, though, like, what is a SQL injection attack? So if you're using like modern approaches, if you're following modern tutorials, you probably won't write this code the same way that's vulnerable. But if you're using, you know, tutorials written in like 2006, or you you were just around back then, uh, this might be more familiar to you. Oh, I was that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so once upon a time, um, developers used to take like get parameters, like get, you know, ID, and combine it with the uh, SQL query to like, if they wanted to have an interactive application, they would like fetch a user by their ID number or by their username and then display their profile. Uh, what SQL injection is, is instead of passing like a number, you would pass in like a some SQL command, usually with a semicolon in front, or not a semicolon, uh, apostrophe, you know, like single quote. And that would usually break out of the uh, current structure that was being built. And then you would put your own commands in there. Uh, you can do things like, you know, if you are pulling in, you know, one at a time, you can say, you know what, I'm actually going to pull all of them instead of like, you know, like a top three list. I'm going to drop the limit. I'm going to get everything at once. Uh, you can say, oh, I want to actually, you know, join this on the users table and get their password hashes. And you could do that. And suddenly you have a web page full of everybody's password hashes, uh, assuming that they were hashed in the first place. So you could basically take any data in the database that that web application has access to and steal it. More advanced attacks, you could write a file to the file system by saying like, you know, union select some qu quoted string containing a PHP, you know, malware uh, into out file and then something in the document root. So generally, once somebody has access to your database, it's generally game over. There might be mitigations in place to protect things like your SSL keys, but most web applications, you know, you have, if you have read write access to the database, you've got the keys to the kingdom. Uh, especially if you can escape to the file system and get code to run on the server, then you can just run whatever malware you want. And yeah, it's not fun. Yeah, absolutely. Game over. And, and so yeah, how do you prevent this from occurring then? So the old way of doing things was to escape it for like SQL command characters, like single quotes. That's not really effective because the people who wrote the escaping functions did it with good intentions. It is useful in certain contexts, but generally if you're taking user input, and you're combining it into a domain-specific language like SQL, you don't know how it's being used when you write the function. It's literally input-output. It's kind of dumb. Uh, you don't know the character set being used necessarily, especially with the old MySQL extension. So you have input-output, no context given. You don't know if it was user input or something from you know a trusted source or a hard-coded constant that just got mixed in with some other data based on some switch statement somewhere else upstream, and now you know it's safe you're kind of operating blind. And the other problem is you the developer has to be consistent and diligent. They have to always escape. 
if they miss it one time and a you know hundred thousand line code base, you slept up once and now everything's catastrophic. So the long-term scalable solution to this is what's called prepared statements, which is hopefully what everybody knows to use nowadays. If not, you know, type in PHP prepared statement tutorial in your programming language you're learning in, in Google, and you will find something somewhere written by somebody who does not want your site to get hacked by SQL injection. It will tell you how to do it right. So there's two kinds of prepared statements uh, in PHP. You have the emulated one, which is the default, which basically it does like the escaping, like string escaping, you know, the whole MySQL real escape string thing, but it does it in the background. So it'll, uh, like, you have a parameter for a placeholder, like you'll say, like, select from foo where column equals question mark. It'll replace that question mark with a properly escaped string, you know, we hope, and send that all as one query and you have one round trip. The problem is, is as I alluded to earlier, there were character-based, uh, character-set-based attacks where if you had ran a query that set your character set to something different than the database driver knew, you could actually inject meta characters. Like if you were, I, there was a long Stack Overflow answer that specified this in detail. Um, if you type in bypass prepared statements on Google, you'll probably find it very quickly. But basically it was one of the Asian character sets where one of the escape quote codes included the ASCII character for the uh, single quote. So if even if you were using prepared statements and you did, you know, you set the character set at one point, but it was set to like UTF-8 or something uh, in the driver itself, and you injected this character, you could then treat it as a single quote with some junk after it, and then you've got escape access. Again, game over. <laughs> so, so what actually then is prepared statements then compared to emulated? So prepared statement uses an API provided by the database software to prepare a query uh, exactly as on the label. And what it basically does is it'll send one packet and it'll say, I want you to repair this query that accepts these placeholders. And the database software in the background turns, returns an ID for the prepared query and says, okay, use this and send your parameters separately. And then you can actually reuse this prepared statement and send, like, if you're doing a lot of inserts, like a huge batch insert into a database, you can just reuse the query with just past different parameters. And again, that's splitting the data from the code exactly. itself. There is no input unless you find a buffer overflow vulnerability in like you know Postgres uh, that can alter the original string that was passed to the database server because it's separated completely. They're sent in separate packets. So I talk a lot in you know whenever I do developer training or if I'm just talking online about code data separation as a security layer that is what I consider provably secure because there's no possible input that alters the uh, code that was being executed you're just providing it with data and that's far more secure than trying to tell people to you know escape sql injection and deal with cross-site scripting in this way and then you know deal with xpath injection this way and remember all these mystical incantations you have to put in your code designing better apis that make security easy to use is a more scalable and easy to digest solution there's a uh the OWASP uh, Israel chapter has a member called Avi Duglin who's very popular on Stack Overflow. And Avi has a law of usable security, which goes like this. Uh, security at the expense of usability comes at the expense of security. And that's very true. If I expected people who... I mentioned Chronicle earlier, which is that uh, append-only data structure that's very blockchain-y. Uh, it uses a protocol called Sapient, which is basically... Um, 
for communication between two API endpoints, you can sign or encrypt messages back and forth. And this is on top of what TLS provides. So like if you have a hard-coded public key for a service and you want to encrypt a message, or if you have a you know API provider you trust and you want to sign the message or you want to verify the messages that they've signed, you can use the uh, sodium cryptography uh, features transparently in the background just by using Sapient. I wouldn't expect developers to write live sodium in their code, like implementing the Salsa 20 uh, cipher, implementing you know the Poly 1305 authenticator, doing all the field arithmetic. I mean, if you look at the sodium compat source code, you can see an implementation of that. Uh, it's not fun to try to write that from scratch. Instead, you have a simple interface that does this all in the background for you. View this that the same kind of idea applies here to prepared statements. You have a simple way of solving the problem without having to re-implement everything from yourself. Um, and even emulated prepared statements are better than nothing, but I still advise against them because they don't have that property where the code is sent in one packet and then it, there's an identifier that sends the parameters with that identifier in a separate packet. I know that you've got like the EasyDB library and stuff. Is there a way of actually telling, you know, like your database to use this or the driver to use this? Like does PDO say, oh, I can use prepared statements with this version of Postgres, I will, or else it will fall back to emulated, or do you actually have to specify it yourself? You actually have to call the set attribute function on your PDO object. If you're using the EasyDB library, which sounds like it's four letters, but it's actually the word easy followed by DB, uh, this does it for you if you pass a PDO object in the constructor. And if you try to, you know, invoke set object on the library I wrote, it, and you try to override the uh, attribute to make it not use prepared statements, it'll actually throw an exception and basically saying, no, you can't do that. I've convinced putting a HAL 9000 reference in there, but I don't think a lot of people would get it. And like, you know, with like the emulated then, so is it a simple case of if I, on my PDO, set the attribute to a real prepared statement and it should, everything should work as expected if I was to, you know, similarly to how I was using emulated? Is it, you know, is it a like for like, or is there anything that needs to be kind of changed or to bear in mind if you're using a real pre, uh, prepared statement? However, there may be a, perform a slight performance, I suppose. Yeah. So if you're concerned with uh, micro-optimizing your architecture, uh, you might shy away from, you know, what I call actual prepared statements because it does take two round trips to the database. First, you send the prepared query and then you send the parameters. The overhead of a round trip on your database should be minimal, like in the order of milliseconds or even like microseconds. And you don't want to have game over. It's better to have a little bit slower and be secure than game over. Exactly. So that's my stance on it. And also, you know, it does matter. Like I said, if you're inserting a thousand rows into a database, uh, that extra round trip, it doesn't become 2000 round trips. Like, you know, if you, you know, you're going from one to two, it goes to 1001. And the second round trips actually have less data because you have an identifier than your parameters. You don't have the structure of the query that's already negotiated. And again, yeah, and it just follows that rule that, you know, you say, which is so true, the data and the code split out and it's truthfully being that way. And it's almost impossible for them to actually, you know, to, for it to be corrupted. And there's none of this context-based escaping and things that have to go on. Yep. It makes the uh, security posture of the situation boring. And that's the property that's actually desirable. You want your security and your, especially your cryptography to be boring to where things are obviously secure and uninteresting to researchers. Oh, that's so true. Moving on from that, you know, file uploads. Now, file uploads are a scary thing in itself. You know, allowing a client not only to just send text, you're now allowing them to send an arbitrary file, binary stream, an image, whatever, you know. I'm just wondering kind of like what are the, the gotchas and maybe like things to bear in mind when you're allowing people to upload files? 
Um, so there's two big problems with uh, file uploads. The first one, you know, okay, a bit of background. If you're accepting file uploads, you're allowing them to upload a file to your file system, even if you reject it afterwards. It's in your temp directory or whatever your equivalent is on your OS. And that is a bit scary, letting anyone on the internet write a file to your file system. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> uh, so that is scary by itself. Um, but the big things people have is, A, trusting data they shouldn't. Like if I send a file to a server and I tell you that, you know, the file extensions like .php dot, but the, uh, you know, the file type is image slash JPEG, they'll just go, oh, it's an image. Okay, I'm going to drop it in the images directory. And that was actually a uh, Joomla exploit back in the day. <laughs> where if you appended a dot, it would bypass the filter and let you upload it. There was actually a talk at a security conference called B-Sides uh, in Orlando. Uh, there's B-Sides conferences all over the place. This was the first year I went to it, and there was a guy talking about snort rules. Uh, this is a slight tangent, but I think this is an interesting story. And he was talking, you know, he was doing demos of writing rules for this thing called snort, which just does intrusion detection. And at the very beginning of the talk, he says, you know, feel free to interrupt me with questions at any time. I love it. You know, he's demoing a rule to block this Joomla exploit. And I'm looking at this, and I've never encountered this Joomla exploit before. This is, you know, something that was completely unknown to me because I was kind of in my own microcosm back in this period of time. And I looked at the thing, and I just said, so you're blocking .php dot. What if I upload a PHP 3 file or a PHTML file? And he's like, well, you know, uh, well, this this rule will stop 99.9% of attackers. You know, nobody's really going to send a .html file. And then everyone in the room just kind of, like, shuffled a little bit. And the person next to me was like, yeah, but he would. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> you, all you need is one person. And this is the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, a lot of security defense um, actually looks like that. Like they'll block the .php file because that's the public exploit people are using. They don't stop and decontextualize what they're defending, usually because they have like 30 things to do that day, including like 20 vulnerabilities that are very high. They need to get a mitigation pushed out to stop clients from getting hacked um, to go... Well, what if they changed it slightly? Our detection wouldn't catch it, but they would still manage to get past it. And so that's that's an interesting field of research is bypassing filters and security products. Because I suppose it is just a filter, isn't it? So I need to know it, what your expected input is to, to catch you. Exactly. So it's a kind of, yeah, it's a chicken and egg thing there. Exactly. So, yeah. So for file uploads, you know, one of the problems is accepting, you know, trusting what the data they give you is like if it's a mime type or a file name you know that might not match what the actual content is that's the thing because you can spoof your mime type you can spoof your file extension you're kind of at the mercy then of really you don't know what you've got any data that comes over the wire can be spoofed the only thing that's the exception is your ip address because you're going to do a round trip with the browser anyway or whatever the http client is you can assume that like server remote adder that key in the server uh, global is the actual IP address that the server is talking to. That doesn't necessarily mean the one that the person uses. You've got to think of proxies and things like that. Yeah, uh, I've seen some weird instances where people tried to detect like the Cloudflare forwarding IP address to like overwrite the remote address of the person that's talking to them without checking that the uh, IP address that they're actually seeing is from Cloudflare. So you could send a header and just pretend that you're someone else and their server, like all their logging from that point on would just blindly trust it and go, oh, yeah, this is coming from Pakistan. It's just sitting there not even bothering to use Tor. The, the other ones is things like uh, I've seen like X forwarded for. I'm just passing that in. And, you know, typically a stack will have and use that, but maybe they'll allow in just pass through the, the front door. 
if you've already got x44 keep it and you can kind of play around there yeah if you send like a 10 dot um ip address to a lot of corporate uh internet sites you can usually just bypass a lot of the stuff surprisingly effective i've seen people you know like it's those kind of things like that where you're like oh crap and it's like because i mean it's interesting like amazon's sorry this is Italian, cloudfront uh, you know they will keep that they're, they're on they say yeah we'll keep the x44 but you know at the end we'll append the real ip address it came from but it all depends on how your search rules for that x44 are to actually bear that in mind of what actually really was the ip address that it came in you can really mess around with those headers uh, and there's obviously the forwarded header and the x44 and you can yeah play around with the two different ones to kind of yeah see what what goes through and pretend that you're a proxy in in that chain yep uh there's a lot of fun you can do there um it's not so fun on the other end of things where it's like, oh, well, we thought this came from this IP address, but they actually lied, and now our our logs are completely forensically useless. That's never a fun position to be in. Oh, no. No, no, no. Uh, and, you know, so, yeah, so you say that you can't trust the MIME type. You can't trust the file extension. And then so, like, kind of how do you – so say, fictitiously, I want to upload an image. I want people to be able to upload images. I want them to be able to display these images. How do I do that safely? I know that you mentioned, like, you've, you've discussed in the past, like, SVGs allowing for some bizarre reason JavaScript to be executable within them. This, these kind of things like that, how do you treat them as just files as opposed to executables and things like that? So that was the other part I was going to get to was actually serving the file after you store it, which you have to decide where to store it. Um, rule of thumb, it never should go in public HTML or whatever your document root is. It should always go in a directory that's a sibling to that directory. So if you're in like slash home slash example.com slash public HTML, and that's where your URL requests go, uh, slash home slash example.com slash uploads or images or whatever you, you know your framework or whatever calls it should be where your files go to. And that's the part that should be you know world writable for your file uploads. And then it's like, okay, well, how do you download them? And then you'll have a lot of people who have like split opinions on how to actually implement downloading the file. Personally, I don't see too much of a uh, performance overhead to just do an access control check because I've built systems, including Airship, where if you upload a file, you can upload into a directory, and then you can put access controls that only let certain users access anything in that directory. And this is all remotely by, done by the PHP, by the way. This is based on like URL paths. I can go into more into permissions and access controls later, but for the time being, you know, it does all the whatever checks, making sure you're logged in, uh, sends security headers like content security policy, and then it just, you know, it sends the file MIME type that it, you know, actually is the file content. It, like it, the server will actually look at the file and say, okay, well, we're going to send like a uh, uh, image JPEG, and if it's not in this whitelist of known trusted things, we're just going to send it as like text plain. Uh, never serve an HTML file, by the way. Uh, that's how phishing happens. Then, you know, you have a URL, yes, PHP script that will just read the file and serve it to the user. I use ReadPath. I know the naive ways to echo file get contents, but uh, ReadPath is a little bit faster. So that's the general idea is that you proxy the file to serve it to users through a PHP script or some other programming language equivalent. And you never store the files in a way that can be accessed directly because... As we've seen with uh, a lot of the, I think it was even the Temthumb uh, exploit that hit WordPress a couple of years ago, uh, you can upload JPEG files that have EXIF data that contain PHP scripts. And if you access them directly and mess around with some of their settings, usually HD access, uh, you can get a JPEG image that when you access it, opens a reverse shell to a server out in the world. And then they can just take over your server. What actually is a reverse server? Because I do see these kind of things. You know, when you say you put something on the server and you're able to, was that actually able to access that box then 
So you know how you can SSH into a server? Uh, you can access a shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, a reverse shell is like an exploit file, like a PHP script or uh, something equivalent. I've seen Perl and Python scripts from here and there that when accessed will connect back to a server and execute any commands and it will actually spawn a process usually that the uh, TTY for that session, that terminal session is then assigned to. So, you know, if you click on this image, it will spawn a PHP, uh, you know, the PHP script will run. Um, it'll connect a, it'll spawn a, a terminal session that connects back to some IP address in Uganda and if you can, the person who runs that server now knows, oh, hey, we have another server, you know, that's connected to us. Mm-hmm. And then they can just, you know, it's almost like they can SSH in without SSHing in because they have that process running in the background. Some of these are simple, like it'll run the existing shell. Some of these are full featured shell implementations where they actually spawn a process that sits there and, you know, sends pulls back and forth to the server, you know, to like some API and then goes, oh, I have, you know, a workload to do. And that's where botnets come in. So I suppose it's how big the payload actually can be then. Um, yeah, I've seen megabyte uh, exploits, but that's because of code obfuscation. And so, yeah, for moving on from file uploads, we're back to kind of similar in a similar vein to SQL injections, playing around with data and code again. It's like cross-site scripting attacks. You know, what actually then is a cross-site scripting attack? Generally, it's the ability to execute JavaScript on the browser that was not intended. Um, there's different variants. Like you have uh, stored where you like set your display name uh, on like a user list to like script tag alert, you know, XSS. And then if you do the, you know, users page on the website, you're doing your test on uh, when you load the page, suddenly a box will pop up with an alert that says XSS in text. And that's uh, usually a trivial example. People use as a proof of concept, um, but you can do really subtle, transparent things, especially on websites with a lot of traffic, like advertising networks. Uh, if you put a keylogger, obfuscated, you know, whatever you you want to do on a web page that serves advertisements, it's going to blend right in with the traffic that's already being generated. How prevalent do you see cross-site scripting t- attacks now? You know, with like the advent of like Blade and Laravel and Twig and all these things and all these different like HTML purifiers, if you want to make ensure that you want to filter a subset of like HTML itself, these templating languages, they're definitely a benefit, I'm right in thinking. Oh, yeah. So one of the biggest things that templating languages let you do is what's called content-aware escaping. If we circle back to prepared statements, that's actually a very easy problem to solve. You take your data, you take your instructions, you know, your query, your code, and you send them separately so they can't pollute each other. Like they can't, there's no cross-contamination, they're separate, they're isolated. Um, you can't do that with cross-site scripting because when you access a web page, it's sending you a large blob of HTML you know, a large thing of JavaScript, CSS, images, all in one bundle usually. And there might be, you know, references to other files like link headers. But if you have JavaScript on the page uh, or you have an HTML attribute and you're escaping for HTML meta characters, like the uh, less than and greater than signs, but you don't escape double quotes properly, you can actually inject something into an attribute. So it's kind of a tougher problem to solve. Uh, from a fundamental, you know, a fundamental approach. What's cool about like Twig and Blade is that you can actually say auto escape in the HTML context, and then whenever you're taking uh, any data from like the database or a user input, you put it in the template. You can actually say, but escape this one in an HTML attribute context, or escape this one in a CSS context, and that allows you to be context aware again. Exactly. 
So it is a step in the right direction. I think a perfectly provable security model would be to uh, pre-render like a template and then send the data afterwards. But that's not really how most web development's done these days. And so that would be in a similar vein then to the whole prepared statement model, wouldn't exactly. it? Exactly. Where you've got the data first, yeah, the, the code first, and then you pro- provide the data. Exactly. That's awesome. And then moving on from there, then you've got the other cross-site re- request forgery. The frameworks help a lot around these type of things, automatically including this type of stuff. You know, cross-site scripts and attacks where you've got, you know, vanilla, PHP, and then a mesh of HTML, you're typically, you know, you're having to do with it yourself. But then languages and to a twig, lang- you know, twig templates and blade, et cetera, they kind of help that way. And also then the cross-site request forgery, they allow informed context, you know, to be able to add these, you know, implicitly. What, what actually then is a cross-site request forgery? So a cross-site request forgery is where you either through an image tag, some third-party web page you can execute JavaScript on to like submit forms transparent in the background. Uh, Through some means, you can create a request to a web page. And in doing so, you can actually execute commands that the user has access to uh, as if you were the user. So for example, um, this is a very common one in routers. If you send someone to a web page, you know, a web page either embedded in an email or like you've tricked them into clicking a link that will have a form with an auto submit attribute that sets the uh, router password for remote access. It enables the feature and sets the password to something the attacker controls and then submits itself. So then they get your IP address and then they have access to your router so they can remotely control it all in one go. So the way that cross-site request forgery is prevented is um, what's called challenge response authentication, where you have a random value that's a secret known to the server and also put in the forum as a one-time token as a uh, hidden attribute. And there's different implementations. Some people do perform tokens. Some people do like per session tokens. I wrote a library called anti-CSRF that allows you to prevent what's called replay attacks. But generally, you have a token that's uh, called the CSRF secret uh, that's in the form data, like the post or get data, that's also stored in the sessions uh, somewhere. And it's not included anywhere else. It's not in the URL. It's not something that the attacker can guess. It has to be a secret. And when you get form data, the first thing you do is you check the token. And if it does not match, you reject the entire request. You can either give them a 500 error. You can redirect them back to the form with an error message. Uh, however you handle it is a little bit depending on what your you know what your UX goals are. Um, but generally, when you encounter one of those, it's a security uh, vulnerability attempt. So treat it as such you know log it if it keeps happening then you know that either you have a victim or you have somebody something else going on that requires investigation it's not like a direct attack like a sql injection you should not block the ip address because this is probably some person who's being attacked not the person attacking you and then another one you know kind of following on and we've already discussed this actually quite a bit is cryptography you you're a big proponent of and you know you did a lot of work on was getting libsobium into php 7.2 and i think you you know you deserve a lot of praise for that you know and getting rid of mcrypt i'm just wondering kind of like you know what is libsobium for for the audience and you know why was mcrypt so bad and kind of how has this helped php you know in the security vein Okay, uh, I'm going to start with Encrypt just because, you know, I'd rather get the bad out of the way. <laughs> uh, so Encrypt was a uh, cryptography library that implemented basic ciphers like uh, AES and Twofish and Serpent. Um, it also included some old ones like Blowfish and, you know, the disk encryption standard from old DOS days. It got abandoned, I think, in 2003. 
or 2006, somewhere in that time frame. But it has definitely not been touched since 2007. And the developers actually went on to work on GNU TLS. At least some of them have. But it was back in the day, it was like the primary library people used to like encrypt data. There was a couple problems with it. Um, first of all, like the code had not been really been tested that well, especially on 64-bit platforms. Um, there was a cipher called Ghost, which is a Russian cipher. And they have, you know, most ciphers have something called an S-box, a substitution box, which is used for basically figuring out how to do like a substitution, like um, A equals 1, B equals 2 kind of thing, uh, depending on what the cipher's specific design is. And the S-box is usually like a, it's not always a permutation of numbers, but usually it is like, it'd be like 5, 12, 13, 6, 2, 7, 8, 1, you know, all the numbers between 1 and 16 or maybe 0 and 15, in a seemingly random order. Encrypt for years has been using, it's in one of the places, the standard had 12 used everywhere else, and Encrypt had two, and nobody caught that for, like, ever. So there wasn't a lot of actual testing of integration. Um, it used, if remember how I mentioned the padding, where you would use, if you had one byte left over in a block, you'd fill the block with 15. They filled it with zero bytes by default, like, null. Like, null bytes. Uh, so that led to a lot of weird people, there are a lot of weird things where people would like uh, trim the padding when you decrypt a block with, you know, a message with encrypt and you'd lose data uh, at the end of it. So you weren't actually getting what you put into it. And also the API was not really user friendly for security. Like most people would use what's called ECB mode, where each block is encrypted, you know, with a key independently and that's it. So if you have a large message with a lot of structure to the data, you'll get repeated blocks. This is uh, called the ECB penguin, where you would take the image of the Linux penguin tux, and you would uh, encrypt it with a random key using uh, AES and CBC mode. And you can still see the penguin in the encrypted output. And people, you know, the problem with ECB mode isn't that you can see the penguin, it's that it's not what we call semantically secure. It's not indistinguishable for randomness because, you know, each block is 16 bytes of data. But if you have the same key and the same input, you're always going to get the same output. It's deterministic. So, you know, there's a lot of shortcomings to the library. The fact that it was abandoned means that things like the broken ghost cipher and the fact that their AES implementation didn't use the new AES NI instructions. Uh, AES, you know, the uh, standard cipher that most people use for TLS, uh, is vulnerable to what's called a cache timing attack when it's implemented in software. A cache timing attack is basically... You have data. Is it in the L1 cache on your processor? If not, you know it'll take longer to pull it from RAM or from a higher cache. You can actually use this uh, to leak data about secrets that are used in uh, table lookups uh, for something that's programmed in C or assembly. So the software implementations people did of AES was actually did exactly this. It would take like you know round keys, uh, which are derived from your key for each round of the AES process. And it would actually do, you know, for the S-Box, it would do a lookup to figure out, you know, where to move things to. And there was a lot of research into this. Uh, Dan Bernstein, one of the people who wrote a library called SALT in ACL, which was the predecessor to Libsodium, uh, he actually was one of the co-authors for a paper that did a uh, attack against AES, uh, exploiting this to recover the secret key. And I think it only took 65 milliseconds on commodity hardware at the time. Uh, side channel research is a huge uh, field. Like, there's not a lot of people in it, but there's a lot of wealth of knowledge. It covers a lot of areas. 
meltdown inspector come to mind with side channels <laughs> yeah um so one of my friends taylor hornby uh he runs you know diffuse security like bomb diffusing um he actually did a talk at black hat uh two years ago about using what's called a flush flush reload attack where you you know put data in the l3 cache the software over there does it uh you flush it and you reload it and then as the software is running you can see based on timing information if the data you put in there matched what was you know the software was expecting so you can actually use this to figure out you know to learn when certain things happen and he actually built a script that could tell which of the top 100 wikipedia pages you were browsing on firefox just by being in a completely unprivileged process uh doing the flush and reload process and then checking timing information so specter and meltdown were almost variants of the same idea um processors since i think 1995 had this thing called speculative execution where you know reading data from the l1 cache takes like half a nanosecond because it's built to the processor right there you know it's very accessible um so you know that's very fast uh pulling data from the l3 cache i think takes like 500 nanoseconds or maybe a microsecond depending on the cpu uh so that's a huge timing difference and pulling data from ram actually takes a lot longer i think that takes up to like that that's definitely in the microsecond range which might sound like really small time intervals, but consider how far you know how far light moves in that time. You know, you have software that's doing something, and then you get to a conditional. You know, there's a branch in the road. There's an if statement. Okay, well, if this is true, it's going to do one thing. If it's not true, it's going to do the other. So what speculative execution does is, for the sake of speeding things up, it says, okay, uh, I asked the L3 cache or RAM for some data uh, that I need to in order to. Uh, you know, execute this condition or some other part of the processor that's running at a different clock speed. It's going to take some time before I get an answer. So what I'm going to do is they have this thing called a branch predictor that, you know, it, as you start, cycle through a program, it learns, you know, okay, well, this is usually true or this is usually false. So it'll hit that condition and go, okay, so, you know, it's usually true. So I'm just going to proceed executing. I'm going to make a save point and then I'm going to proceed executing the instructions until I know the answer. So that's what speculative execution is, is that your CPU, which is very fast, waiting for an answer from some part that takes a long time to communicate, you know, comparatively, uh, will continue down a branch with a save point in mind. So that way, if that turns out to be false, it can just discard that data and then, you know, start back over from where it was and continue down the branch that it did not predict. And um, there was actually an old Stack Overflow question. Why is my code slower when I use RAND in an if condition? And it was it literally came down to this branch prediction. Uh, and by the way, the branch prediction is also another source of side channel attacks. Um, there's a standard called crypto coding. It's on cryptocoding.net. It's the cryptography coding standard. And I think that's like the number three thing they mention is avoid branches in your code uh, just because of stuff like this. Meltdown was the Intel specific one. Um, Spectre's the more generalized one that works on all processors uh, that have really been tested. Uh, it uses the fact that there's speculative execution to leak data about other processes, uh, including, I think, the uh, Linux kernel was in the proof of concept. Uh, and, and I know now that, because obviously you know, there, there has been the mad rush of getting kernel patches out, but the way that they've had to solve it obviously is not ideal performance way. Obviously, there was, you know, the registry came out with like a 30% hit as a crazy number. Um, but there, there's definitely things now like with, with in, certainly in the Linux kernel of having something called the PCID module actually present now because of the way that you're essentially flipping between tables it, it has to do this isolation now because of the fact of it, you know, it being able to be leaked because of these side channels. So the mitigations that are in place, 
they work, but they're not really ideal for performance. Um, I think they're still researching better ways to do it, but this was kind of like a, okay, well, this is a problem that needs to be fixed. Do you think that there actually will be a better way? Because, you know, as a hardware, I mean, it was funny. I think I've read somewhere, what is the best way of solving this? Well, get a new CPU is essentially the only way of doing it because of the fact that it's the hardware that's deciding to do this. Uh, Unless you kind of, you know, make the perspective in execution better in the CPU, but you can't really do that without changing the hardware. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, I think the answer is going to be replacing the hardware, but you know, I mean, the reason why we use speculative execution and things like this is to make our code quicker and make things quicker. And all this is going to do is probably end up having to make CPU slower because it's not going to be able to do this as much uh, because of this side channel. Or maybe, you know, the fact that because it, it leaks into the cache, doesn't it? And it keeps it in the cache and in the branch predictor. Maybe it can get it out of there. I don't know. Yeah. So I'm not a CPU engineer, so I don't know what the answer to that's going to be, but I can kind of speculate. No pun intended. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I do think that this problem is going to have to be solved by um, at the CPU level, like in building CPUs that don't have the vulnerabilities while still retaining, you know, speculative uh, execution, if that's possible. If not, unfortunately, CPUs are going to get slower. It's not going to be fun. Uh, you're going to have to choose. Like this is the worst case scenario for me, is especially gamers. They're going to have to choose between, you know, oh my video games, you know, they're going to run a little bit slower. I'm only going to have like 29 FPS instead of 30, or I cannot get hacked. Like, whenever you give a consumer a choice between, you know, especially when the threat is largely invisible, like, they'll go to their friends and be like, hey, do you ever get hacked because of Spectre or Meltdown? I guarantee most of them are going to say no. And if, if you're not, you know, in a security, like, group, like, you don't have a friend who works for, like, a security company, the answer is definitely going to be yeah. It's like, yeah, we never, you know, it never bit us, so we have no reason to be twice shy. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, that's not really a good way to approach things. Absolutely. Sorry again for the complete tangent there. Um, you know, so yeah, with Libsodium then, you, you brought this in and it's a replacement then for Encrypt. You know, you did a lot of work with the Peckle stuff and everything beforehand, and now it's officially in 7.2. So what does this mean then for, for day-to-day developers? Like what kind of, and also what use cases can I get out of this in, in a web application? Okay, so uh, Libsodium isn't just a replacement for Encrypt. Um, it actually does a lot more than Encrypt did, but it does it simpler. So, for example, I mentioned that in, with Encrypt, you could choose your cipher and you had to choose your mode. Like you had ECB mode, which was the default that most people are probably using. You have CBC mode, which, as I mentioned before, has that padding Oracle vulnerability. That's all encryption that's not authenticated. So you had to combine it with your own ha- you know, hash-based ma- message authentication code or whatever. You had to build your own protocols. It was not user-friendly in that regard. Uh, LibSodium, in contrast, is you generate a random number called a nonce, a number to be used once. Uh, you have your key and you have your message and you pass it to a function called secret box and boom, all of those complex steps and protocol decisions are handled for you. Like, that's it. Problem solved, move on to the next problem. Uh, in addition to being simpler and easier to use and not having to you know, do protocol construction, especially if you're not a crypto engineer, it does like public key cryptography, like digital signatures, uh, Diffie-Hellman, you know, key exchange. Uh, it does public key encryption. It does what I, what I refer to as sealing APIs, which is uh, what it calls anonymous public key encryption in the documentation. Where you take, you know, your recipient's public key, you encrypt a message. Not only they can decrypt it. Uh, this is useful for like if you're storing credit card numbers for long-term use, and you only want to decrypt them offline. You keep your decryption key, you know, in a protected machine. You keep your ciphertext, you know, whatever. Uh, if your database gets hacked, they have unbreakable, 
you know, practically speaking, uh, unbreakable encrypted data. And if, you know, you ferry it over to your protected machine and, or you have an HSM dedicated for this that decrypts them so that way you can do billing later. Uh, I don't recommend most people go through this process because that's a lot of operational complexity. But if you needed to, uh, Libsodium has the best-in-class cryptography available today to solve that problem. And is it actually being constantly updated as well? Is that you know that was obviously one of the pain points with Encrypt. I, I suppose you're going to be a proponent of this to keep it update up to date in PHP. Yeah, very much so. Um, most of the updates that are happening right now are just making it faster. Um, like in I think it was 1.0.12. They ship some updates to like the uh, an alternative to this reference C implementation that just used optimized assembly um, or, or used 128-bit registers to do a lot of the ciphers and less operations. And generally, when you do things in less operations, you get a performance boost. There are some caveats. Like uh, I think AVX 512 actually uses more power, so your CPU goes to a lower clock rate. So that's not necessarily true, but with Libsodium, you saw like a 20 to 25% performance over a lot of the uh, implementations like uh, Blake 2 and Curve 255.19 and every release comes with new optimizations and little features like Secret Stream which is uh, I haven't delved into the implementation details on that one because it's kind of new and I haven't really had to use for it. So it's kind of like a uh, similar to what I do in Halite with uh, file encryption where you have like chunks and then you uh, authenticate each chunk and also the order of the chunks of each file. So if you do like a race condition attack against the file system, you can't use that to attack and decrypt the content without the key. Very nice. And like you mentioned there, like nonces and things like that. And, and, you know, the concept of randomness in computers is always a funny one because computers are deterministic. Like how do you make something random from something that you've told it what to do? Um, and, you know, the, the idea of pseudo number, uh, pseudo random number generators and stuff. And I think it'd be very interesting kind of, you know, maybe to if it's all right with you to go into kind of like, how do computers make randomness? And like you mentioned there, don't use rand and, and there's also empty rand and then there's the new random bytes, random int and stuff. And like, what are, what are the best ways of doing things in PHP and also actually at the Linux level? Because I know you mentioned like dev view random's good. From the PHP perspective, you always want to use random bytes, you know, the full random underscore bytes or random underscore int. Never rand, never empty rand, never unique ID or micro time or some hodgepodge combining all of those. Uh, the reason is that most of those are either predictable or very uh, have very few possible outputs, especially if you know the time of day. Um, so randomness in general, how it's actually implemented in CPUs is actually very simple. And for something so complicated, it can actually be stated as this. You take timing information of certain registers, like microseconds or nanoseconds of when keys were pressed, or when you know certain file operations happened, or when network packets were received, and you take all this data, which by itself is not really reliably random, and you mix it together with a secure function, like a cryptographic function, like AES, you know, the block cipher, or a hash function like SHA-1, or SHA-256, or SHA-3, you know, or the new cha 20 uh, stream cipher and because of the properties of like a stream cipher uh if you have x bytes of output that doesn't tell you anything about the previous or next bytes of output unless you know the key uh so what the os does is it maintains like a key and it'll when you ask for data it'll start at zero and encrypts a bunch of random data and then it'll serve that back to you while it's constantly changing the key so it's like it's you have nonsense being encrypted with other nonsense, and that nonsense is constantly being swapped out. So I suppose the only issue there is if you know what the seed is, and you can then replay the randomness that happened. Yeah. 
Um, so that was a problem with cloud environments back in the day. Nowadays, when you launch a virtual machine, the uh, hypervisor should read its own dev random implementation and use that to seed the VM whenever it launches one. Man, I never even thought about that. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of things on the, sim- on the same hardware, you know, it's reading the same exact thing. What does then dev random do? Does that actually, because I mean, under the hood, sorry, as well, like with random bytes and things, does it use, say, dev random if it's in a Linux environment? Um, and, and I guess then that it uses like network packets, et cetera, to get this source of, you know, this seed randomness. Yeah, dev random, it literally just uses what the OS gives you. Different versions of Linux, uh, different versions of Windows, uh, Mac, whatever you're operating on, will have a different, you know, what they're doing behind the scenes for how they get the randomness. But generally speaking, if your OS's uh, random number generator is broken, it's game over. You're, everything else about your system is also insecure. So if your system is, if we take that attack vector off, let's assume your OS's you know, random number generator is reliable, it's secure, and you use that, which is what PHP's random bytes does, is it actually will pull from uh, if you have a newer Linux kernel to get random syscall, uh, if you're not, it'll just read from dev random, which is the device character file that's in the dev directory that when you read data from it, it just gives you output from the random number generator uh, that's maintained by the operating system. If you're on Windows, it uses something called, uh, I think it's I think it's RTL get random or something like that. Uh, it's been a while since I've messed with the code. Uh, it's the Windows equivalent of uh, get random too. And because I know there was like, obviously, there was discussion about throw, because I know that there's not a sufficient source of randomness, it will throw. Yeah. Yeah, which is the right thing to do, because you'd prefer it to break than be hidden, silently, and secure. Uh, exactly. So there was actually a big debate about this. And this was actually like the first thing I really did with PHP internals was when random bytes was being suggested by Sammy K. Powers, and I forget who his co-author was on, sorry about that. <laughs> he... Originally wrote it to where if you know if it couldn't read from dev random, it would return like false or null, and you know that was just to be compatible with how rand and mt rand work. If something fails internally, it returns a falsy value. But then that can be changed to zero. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so I, you know, included a proof of concept like, okay, let's assume this is going to return false or null, and you have like a password generator that uses random int. And it's like zero to the maximum number of characters, and the random number fails. Your password is like a a a a a a a a. Not exactly hard to guess there. Um, so, you know, I made the argument, and eventually a late stage RFC was was drafted and approved to change it to throw an exception if your OS doesn't have a secure random number generator available, which is very common in situations like FreeBSD jails or just misconfigured hosts. Obviously, if your application, it's looking after it, but it's also looking after your whole host system because it's saying you probably don't have a, a sufficient, and you just say, like, if you don't have a sufficient source of randomness for me to be able to work on, your whole system is, is pretty much toast. Yep. So it's, it, it helps either way, in my opinion, as well. Yeah, so there was a couple of things that could be done there. Um, we could have it fail open, like the you know initial draft, which was, you know, you'd end up with a password that's all like index zero repeated. Then you have the whole, you know, fail closed. If it fails, just die the script. But then that makes developers not want to use that function at all because now it's a source of instability. Oh no, what if I deploy on a server that, you know, doesn't have it? Now my code dies silently or with an error message. And it, you know, that freaks developers out. Anything that causes a fatal error. At least that's used to freak me out back when I did hardcore, like corporate development. Like if it, if it's going to kill the script and puke an error message, that's just going to be bad optics for the entire department. So they were going to shy away from that. That was my fear. So 
I said, throw an exception. And then there was talk about like, well, is it exception? Is it error? You know, which one should it throw in which context? And I'm like, uh, I don't really care. Like, throw something. Like, this is the best implementation because if you do nothing, if you just write random bytes or random int and you don't have any kind of try catch to catch anything, it'll just kill the script. Like, it's secure by default. But if you're a developer who's very conscious about optics, you can catch the exception and display a certain error page and, like, make an alert to the team, like, oh, this feature is actually broken, you know, fix it ASAP and then have like a, you know, very friendly, you know, this site is under maintenance, you know, an error has been reported to the team, blah, blah, blah. It's a lot friendlier than like a white screen with black text that says fatal error. It takes away the fear, like the scary parts of the feature while still being secure by default. And that goes back to the whole Avi Duglin, you know, the security at the cost of usability comes at the cost of security. It's a usable feature that will fail hard by default, but it gives you an option to catch it um, and, you know, and fail gracefully if you ever run into a condition where it will throw. Um, if your OS is configured to have secure randomness, I think it will never fail. There was a weird bug that just got fixed in the recent uh, like 7.2.1 and the latest 7.1 branch, where if you were on a system that... Get random was available, but it didn't work right. It returned the wrong return code. It would fail instead of falling back to Devi random, and that's recently got fixed. So yeah, as a PHP developer, you always want to use those two functions. If you're for some reason stuck on PHP five, there's a compatibility library called Random Compat that's been downloaded something to the tune of like 45 million times. A lot of the frameworks use it just so that way they can write code for PHP seven and use the new randomness interface and not have to worry about it. Um, I know like Laravel and Symfony had their own implementations of something similar, but they were like reading from OpenSSL and that was it. And OpenSSL had a, there was a weird bug back in, I, I don't know if it's totally fixed. I think it's just mitigated to where if the process forked for some, some reason, like if you were in like a, I guess PHP CGI environment or whatever, and your process forks, which basically means it makes a copy of itself and whatnot, you would have the same entropy pool. So uh, Ramsey had a library called for generating UUIDs, and people discovered that they were getting, you know, they were generating millions of these a day, but they were getting hundreds of collisions because they were building forked processes. And then your OpenSSL pulls copy between forks. So you would generate the same random number twice in a row. So uh, random compat... Uh, if any new like vulnerabilities or weird breaks is discovered in any of the implementations that are used for as a source for randomness, it will be updated to not have those. So if you're running the latest random compat, your random numbers will, I want to say, almost always be as secure as possible <laughs> uh, on PHP 5. If you're using PHP 7, just use random bytes. If you're on PHP 5, just use random bytes, but you don't have random bytes, so great random compat, and then just write it as if you were on PHP 7. No, absolutely, man. Again, it's another thing that you guys have done that really is just helping the community. Uh, you know, you look through your page, kind of like all the open source projects that you do and all the interesting work that you do there and, and you open up to the world. It's just a fascinating. Another interesting thing, and it kind of does carry on with the web application kind of security side of things, is is the concept of like a WAF. You get big systems, you get big kind of corporate systems and stuff. You have many developers, many teams and stuff. Having this idea that you have one single entry point in that can hopefully try and save some stuff. And I know that you're at the company you work for, that Ward, you know, they, they released, they've got a product called Web Application Real-Time Defender. I'm just wondering kind of what, what's your opinion on a WAF? When I talk about security, like application security, I'm usually talking to developers, people who are building the software that they're using. 
uh, a WAF is for people who aren't building the software they're using. They're just a user of a software. Like um, if you're a Magento user, you might have custom extensions being developed, hopefully securely. Um, and you know, most of my normal advice would be, you know, tailored towards Magento developers, people who are building plugins and themes and stuff. But if you're just running a shop somewhere and like, you know, you're selling like, you know, custom t-shirts or like coffee mugs with custom logos printed on them for novelty purposes. And, you know, you've got your own cool branding going on. You're focused on, you're selling your products. You don't have time, especially if you aren't a technical business to delve into like secure patching, especially the Magento interface. Or if you're like uh, running like, e- you know, some e-commerce platform like uh, Zendcart or any of the other ones like WooCommerce, you're not a security expert team, you're there to sell a product and you just have a shopping cart. It's a means to an end. So a WAF in those use cases uh, can be indispensable to companies, but they're not a silver bullet. Uh, Nothing in security is. Um, Everything has to be done in layers. You can't just say, okay, well, um, you know, like for example, back to the file uploading thing, you mentioned the SVG attack where you could do a stored cross-site scripting vulnerability because SVG um, is a standard vector graphics is an XML file. It, if you look at its MIME type, it's prefaced with image because generally it's used to build graphics. But it's actually a document. It's an XML document, and it can include script tags, and the script tags can include code. So if you access one directly through whatever means, like you have a really blurry image that looks like there's something detailed there, so you right-click and hit view image in your browser, you might get an image when you view it full size, but it might be doing something in the background that you're not aware of. And if it's uploaded to the site you're viewing, it doesn't violate the same uh, the same origin policy. So a lot of things like cross-site scripting are still viable. You can just do it like a jQuery.get equivalent, pull the page in, grab the CSRF token, and then execute commands on behalf of the user. It's not pretty. Uh, generally, content security policies for uploaded files, even if you aren't accessing it directly, should be very restrictive. But you know that's that's a that's a defense. The content security policy is a defense. How, how does that actually differ? Sorry, uh, differ when you use the third parties, such as like S3, which is a very popular one. Uh, you know, you delegate it off to let S3 deal with the file uploads as well as managing them. You know, what, what do you kind of have to do? Obviously, you have to be then cautious when running that. You know, running those as well. Or do you? You know, I know you mentioned sorry a while about you know kind of reading and piping it through. Would you do the same manner of you know kind of uh, manner of execution there? If you're mounting an S3 drive locally and uploading files there, but then you're serving it through like the uh, you know the S3 URL, uh, it's not going to execute in the context of your browser, so you're probably safe. Like that's S3's problem. Let Amazon deal with the security of Amazon. <laughs> it's uh, if anything does happen to Amazon, like S3 gets hacked, it's probably a bigger deal than whatever's going to happen to your application for like 99.9% of users. And even if it does affect you, um, and you're like a big company and you know, or you were targeted by the attack because of Amazon, uh, you could probably get it on litigation to sue Amazon for like if they were doing negligent practices. But from everybody I know who works in or around Amazon, they're pretty good about it, things nowadays. Uh, their S3 authentication is a bit weird from a cryptographer's perspective, but eh, it's not bad. Like Amazon, any of these big companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Generally, they have a good security team on, you know, they have the money for one. Now, they can pay them like 200000 a year to do code review, you know, nine to five, 50 hours a week. So they have a lot more resources available to them. What a WAF uh, circling back uh, does is, uh, and I'm going to talk about Ward rather than like 
WAFs in general because uh, I don't know the implementation details of some of them. I know like mod security is just, you know, it's role-based. It just goes, oh, you're trying to do SQL injection. I'm going to block it. Word is a little bit, it's tailored specifically to the PHP ecosystem uh, right now. Uh, I'll eventually build something that's more generalizable if you want to throw it as like a middleware box. So the general idea is to make it a full security suite, uh, you know, web application firewall, intrusion detection, uh, patch management. Two of the three of those are already implemented. Uh, there's some machine learning I want to build that, uh, let's say you have a website that has, you know, very strict, you know, uh, Selenium tests. And you don't want to go through the process of, you know, defining all these, you know, hard, you know, firewall rules. You can actually, you know, enable learning mode, run your Selenium tests, and then anything that it doesn't, you know, it will learn what the pattern of your normal traffic is and block anything that doesn't match it. So even if there's a zero day in like the CMS you're using, like uh, let's say there's a Drupal 8 vulnerability that allows remote code execution, everything gets passed through Word first and it'll say, huh, this doesn't look like normal traffic. No. So that's going to be kind of like an advanced thing, but a lot of people will find a lot of value in that. So, and on the other side, like if you have a QA team and they're the ones who write the Selenium tests, or even if it's not Selenium, like you're randomly going through like a manual testing process to verify before a code deployment is done, you can just turn Ward on learning mode, go through your normal process, you know, go through all your checklist items and then turn Ward off take your, um, the file that it learned and copy it over to your production server. If anything, you know, if the user does anything that's not allowed, they get an error page saying this has been blocked by our security product. You're going to learn very quickly what features your users are using that you don't expect. There's going to be, uh, right now, another thing it does is uh, it monkey patches uh, security in place where it can. Um, there's some things in certain e-commerce platforms that are not secure that... Um, using a namespace collision feature where if you have a function defined in a namespace, like let's say um, you're in like slash symphony slash whatever product slash, you know, auth and it calls the rand function for generating a password for whatever reason. I can define inside of a namespace bracket, a function in the same namespace called rand that silently passes it back to random int. And anytime you have word installed, this function will actually be secure instead of insecure just by virtue of it being there. So it does a lot of little tricks like that to, uh, without being written in C and being compiled and you know installed as a module just from user land PHP code that does nothing special like no peckle extensions, no pre-compiled binaries. Interesting. Sorry, like how how you kind of you do the machine learning side of things, like how you do you train these models and stuff. Like, is it how how do you go about that, or is that kind of the secret sauce? I don't want to go into it. That's too much. a bit of the secret sauce. Uh, Word's not open source because um, you know it is a commercial product for. Uh, e-commerce focused software, but um, a lot of the techniques, it's nothing too crazy. I'm, uh, I'm not doing anything super like incredibly fancy that, you know, I can write a doctoral thesis on. It's, it tries to do a best match for the pattern the traffic it sees and go, okay, well this matches all of this as good traffic. Um, I'm going to be implementing a mode where you can send bad traffic. So you can say, okay, always block these requests that have this, you know, these strings. Like if you're trying to upload a file, um, it'll look at the MIME header and say, okay, well, we've only ever allowed image slash JPEG or PNG, so only allow those. Uh, so if you try to upload something else, it'll say, oh, no, sorry. Um, you know, there's still some tweaking there. That feature hasn't been rolled out yet, but it's being developed and tested right now. Hey, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, it's been such an interesting episode, and I'm sorry I've been going like back and forth on different bits, but it's just because you've got such a wealth of knowledge on so many different areas of security and cryptography and stuff. It's just great to pick your brain about all these things. Oh, thank you for having me. Awesome. All right, then, audience, well, it's been another great episode, and we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye.
You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.